Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. The usual two guests today, both historians. Tom Segrew will take a look at cities amidst the corona crisis. And then Kristen Dumay will explore the fascinating topic of gender in evangelical Christianity. We're jam-packed with content, so I'll keep it short. Cities have played a prominent role in the COVID-19 crisis, not merely as places of sickness, but as incubators of disease in the popular imagination. Although now that COVID is ravaging the rural U.S., that myth-making is harder to sustain. Thomas Segrew, professor of social and cultural analysis and history at NYU and director of its Cities Collaborative, has a long and distinguished career as an urban historian, beginning with his first book from 1996, The Origins of the Urban Crisis, Race and Inequality in Postwar Detroit. Segrew is the editor of a collection of essays on the 2020 crises and their impact on urban life on the Public Books website. His own contribution is called Pre-Existing Conditions, What 2020 Reveals About Our Urban Future. I'll be interviewing some of the other contributors in the coming weeks. Here's Tom Segrew. A lot of people have been using the occasion of the pandemic to uh, pronounce the death of cities, especially big cities like one we both live in. Is that a premature announcement? Oh, I think it's absolutely a premature announcement. A lot of the discussion of the supposed death of cities is focusing on the sorts of urban amenities that appeal to the city's elite, or the fact that wealthy New Yorkers and residents of certain other cities have flocked to the suburbs or decamped to their summer homes in the Hudson Valley or in Connecticut or in the Hamptons. Um, But they're a tiny slice of the population of our cities. And I would say the problems that cities face are far more deeply rooted than what we see in 2020. And focusing on the global rentier elite uh, and their concerns, I think, leads us very quickly to lose sight of some of the real problems and possibilities facing big cities like New York. Since the pandemic began, you've relocated to the borough, man, right, Brooklyn? Yeah, I have. Yes. Um, and I, you know, I haven't been in Manhattan very much for, for many, many months, but it, I, I have noticed uh, a very different feel uh, on the streets of Brooklyn from what I see described in Manhattan. Manhattan seems, at least in you know, its former bustling midtown, to be pretty empty, whereas Brooklyn streets are very, very lively. The whole, a whole lot of things that we associate with urban life, that kind of spontaneous gatherings of crowds and, and the sociability and, and, and vitality, still, despite these challenges, seem very much intact. Absolutely. Um, most residents of Brooklyn, which is so much more socioeconomically heterogeneous in Manhattan, haven't picked up and left. They've built or rebuilt or managed living in the city um, at this moment. And we see signs in many parts of Brooklyn of the density and richness of the social networks that are uh, one of the upsides of urban life and uh, um, an upside of urban life that I think needs to be strengthened as we move forward from 2020 to build on. But of course, uh, this pandemic has revealed so many of the fissures in Capitalist societies globally, but the American variety in particular, uh, fissures by race and class and geography and occupation uh, just have really been brought into stark relief. Could you, you talk about those those lines of cleavage that have become really stark over the last, uh, how many months is it now? Nine? Yeah. As a historian, um, I gravitated toward a metaphor that I use in my introduction to the public book series, which is pre-existing conditions. We talk about the pandemic having particularly negative consequences on individuals who have pre-existing conditions, age, chronic illness, autoimmune disorders, and and the like. But I think we can apply that metaphor especially to cities. Um, the, The negative impact of the pandemic on housing and, and the jeopardy of eviction or on the labor market, on workers of color, on so-called essential workers who are doing the kind of service work that hasn't stopped during the pandemic, their conditions are, are pre-existing. That is, to take the example of New York, um, but really any big American city, they're cleaved by socioeconomic divides that have worsened considerably over the last 30 or, or 40 years, exacerbated by public policies that advantage the wealthy and corporations and disadvantage 
working class and, and middle class and impoverished urban residents. We need to, to think about what's going on in 2020 in the context of these conditions that, that go back sometimes, you know, a decade to the economic crash of 2008, 2009, 2010, or that go back sometimes, you know, for a century, um, the deep patterns of residential segregation by race that haven't changed very much despite our ostensibly progressive views about race in the United States in the 21st century. Paradoxically, um, rents uh, look like they're coming down in New York. They look, they've been coming down very hard in San Francisco. And this is presented in a lot of the, <laughs> the, the capitalist hyena press, as Bob Fitch used to call it, as bad news, a sign of distress, a sign of people fleeing. But how can we think about this decline in housing costs? Is it an opportunity to remake these cities in different ways from what they've become over the last 20, 30 years? Well, one of the reasons for high housing costs is there's been a lot of overbuilding, um, particularly at the high end of the market. New York and San Francisco high-end markets have been softening for the the last few years because uh, all these new places are springing up all over Tribeca and, and, and Soho here in Manhattan or Hudson Yards. Um, there isn't the same market for that kind of housing that there was before. But more consequentially, the drop in rent so far isn't opening up opportunities for working class and, and middle class people in, in the market. We have underbuilt for them for decades now. Um, we've eviscerated a system of what the Europeans call social housing or public housing, affordable housing in, in our big cities for decades now. And that disinvestment in, in the public sector is coming home to roost in overcrowding in many working class neighborhoods and the movement of many working class folks to to more affordable housing on the outer peripheries of our metropolitan areas, which is sometimes the only place where you can find apartments or, or small houses that are manageable for, for someone with a modest income. And so we're looking at a pre-existing condition here that's been really devastating. And the drop in rents in, in New York and San Francisco isn't going to go anywhere close to solving the affordable housing crisis. I think back on the urban crisis of the 70s, uh, well, particularly in New York, when the uh, that development on the west side uh, in the west 40s in Manhattan got turned into artist housing, Manhattan Plaza. We now see this enormous amount of construction downtown Brooklyn, for example, or in Central Park South of these billionaire towers, which I would think are going to go largely empty now. <laughs> like the billionaire towers have been empty a lot of time because they're pied a terre for billionaires. But on the other hand, um, you know, this, this building in downtown Brooklyn, high rises like crazy, which will be empty. What could we do with those? That's a great question. I mean, I, I spend a lot of time walking around the city. And as a dog owner, I walk around at night a lot. And when I walk through downtown Brooklyn or parts of lower and mid, midtown Manhattan, what's most striking to me are these high-rise buildings that are all dark, right? There are no lights on at night. Nobody's there. And uh, that seems to me uh, a potential opportunity. But it would take a really significant public policy intervention to use pu public resources to buy up empty apartments, empty you know, empty condos in these buildings and make them available on an affordable basis to, to working and middle class folks. It's necessary. Look, I mean, New York depends on, as, as we've seen, especially during the COVID crisis, on service sector workers to do everything from, you know, deliver food and, and work in the grocery stores and work in the hospitals and clean the streets. But they can't afford to live anywhere near most of the neighborhoods where they're working in. And it would be optimal, I think, to to consider the uh, adaptation of these buildings largely lying waste. But that's going to require a lot of significant changes at the municipal level in particular. And, and you know, our, our city halls have been pretty beholden, pretty beholden, that's maybe an understatement, <laughs> very beholden to developers for a very long time um, in terms of, uh, of, of tax abatements and, um, and incentives to, uh, to build. And uh, rolling those back is, is going to take a, a real act of political will. Yeah, I remember the uh, the Ed Koch years, uh, the 1980s, uh, Koch trying to recover from the fiscal crisis. The 70s, the city had uh, seized a whole lot of delinquent properties that, that just had fallen behind their taxes. The city then became a very large owner of uh, real estate. And uh, the major initiative of the Koch years was trying to use public subsidies to return those to private ownership and kickstart the, uh, the private market. I can imagine that would be the impulse of the real estate class this time around if we see similar levels of vacancies and bankruptcies and, and defaults. How would this play out? The public isn't always aware of what is going on. I mean, how can we make this into a salient political issue? 
Well, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, there's been a lot of activism around the country, particularly uh, around evictions and affordable housing. And right now, it's scattered. I mean, there's a really active movement in Chicago. There are folks working on affordable housing and eviction in Los Angeles. And Anya Roy wrote a piece about that for our public book series. You know, there are folks in Boston. There are folks, of course, here in New York. But so far, those really um, important local initiatives haven't summed up into something larger, right? Haven't, haven't you could say, aggregated upward to become a, a movement to put pressure on the federal government, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, for example, on state governments and municipal governments, all of which have the tools to intervene in urban housing markets, to channel resources towards affordable housing and, and work for the, the right to housing, which has been one of the demands of these organizations. So we really need to think about building on and learning from these, these grassroots uh, movements around the country and around the world and, uh, and build, build on them. The Right to the City group, which is based here in New York and works closely with some of my colleagues at NYU, particularly um, the Urban Democracy Lab and John Paolo Bialki, they've been doing some really good work um, to try to build connections between housing activists in different cities and to push for uh, more progressive housing policies. But we've got a long and uphill battle. And look, that battle has been fought and largely lost to the private real estate sector, even in countries that had really well-developed systems of, systems of social housing like Britain, right? Where you walk around London and you see social housing in nearly everywhere. But Huge amounts of it have been now converted into private housing um, and, uh, and and taken off of the, the the stock of affordable housing for the general public. So this is a fight that's got to be fought in in many, many places simultaneously. Well, Maggie Thatcher knew what she was doing when she uh, privatized all that council housing. Absolutely. And it's uh, it's had really negative consequences. I mean, you see in London, the same thing you see in San Francisco and New York, which is working class folks moving further and further out, oftentimes having to do ridiculous commutes into the center where they're working, because that's the only place they can find affordable housing. The working class neighborhoods of central London that were long the you know basis of labor activism and, and immigrant activism are, are now um, increasingly havens for the high tech and the media and the financial elite that um, at least pre-Brexit dominated uh, development in central London. I'm speaking with the historian Tom Segrew. One of the curious facts of the, I don't know how to periodize this, the mid-pandemic months uh, in the summer was the explosion of protest against policing. Uh, how does policing figure into this crisis and why did those protests explode at that moment? Do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, yeah. I mean, I've been writing about protests and, and protests against racial injustice, uh, you know, for much of my career and focusing on the history as well as the present of them. And, you know, I think there are a number of forces at work. One is that there has been a grassroots movement challenging police brutality that's been slowly snowballing into something big, going back to Black Lives Matter, uh, you know, six, seven years ago now, in Ferguson and St. Louis and Charleston in addition, the fact that there are a lot of people with a lot of time on their hands, with a lot of anger toward the current administration uh, and in its attitudes towards policing and law and order and race made the events of the summer almost almost inevitable. But what's been interesting to me about the protests this summer, and they differ a lot from previous generations of, of street protests around racial injustice, is how diverse they are how enormous they were. This is the largest, in terms of just number of people, the largest wave of protests in American history. Yeah, I think Gallup said one in 10 American adults participated, which is just a phenomenal number. A phenomenal number. And so I think that that um, deserves um, note. I mean, it's really quite extraordinary. Um, I would say the other thing that, and, and this is based on, on my own, seeing a lot of protests walking by in lower Manhattan or riding by in lower Manhattan when, when I was living there, Folks are connecting together issues in, to use the word of the day, intersectional ways. That is, carrying signs that are denouncing police violence, but also calling for action on, on global warming and, and connecting it to predatory global capitalism and talking about trans rights. And I mean, I was amazed actually at how diverse the demands of many of the of folks in the streets were, um, even if they were all brought together and unified around opposition to um, racially discriminatory policing. What do you attribute that to? I attribute it to the fact that 
young people, and these were overwhelmingly young crowds. I mean, I, I, I felt ancient standing on, you know, <laughs> standing on Sixth Avenue or in Canal watching uh, uh, marchers go by. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of political education going on, um, especially among younger folks. Um, the fact that, you know, most people under 35 um, see socialism as a good thing, right? You see it as a, see it, see it as a word with positive valences and are thinking about and reading about connections between the various crises that um, they're seeing in the world, I think, led a lot of folks to to make those connections while they were marching. And, and uh, the real question, and it's a question of all big social movements, it was a question in the 60s, it was a question in the 19-teens and 1920s, is are we going to be able to build off of the momentum of you know, the late spring and summer of 2020 to create more enduring vehicles for social change, to creating creating institutions that can push the agenda that the marchers are, are calling for, that can build the kinds of coalitions necessary to exercise clout in the political process, whether it be the clout of continued marches on the street or or electing uh, people to office who uh, represent your points of view. And that's still an open question. There's a lot of organizing work that needs to be done to build on the momentum of, of 2020. Now, it's tempting to look to the incoming Biden administration, assuming that happens, as uh, an opportunity to develop some of these movements, or at least to have a friendlier environment for some of these movements. But then I think on, you know, the long and deep history of the relation of the Democratic Party to urban real estate interests, uh, and the way that centrist Democrats have been blaming some of their losses on the defund the police slogan. What about this political terrain? Is it more friendly now? Um, how much of the, you know, the explosion in June was a result of, of hostility to Trump? And will that melt away with a Democratic president? Uh, how do we think about this? I'm, I would say, guardedly optimistic. I think the Biden moment is a very different one um, when it comes to the left's relationship to the Democratic Party than, say, the Obama moment of 2008, when many folks, even folks who were fairly politically astute on the left, kind of took a deep sigh of relief and said, now we've got our guy in, in the White House and projected their fantasies of an African-American president um, turning America hard to the left. And of course, he didn't. Um, and there are lots of reasons for that. I've written about, I've written a book on Obama and race, so I can talk about that. But he was a centrist Democrat. And he was a centrist Democrat for his first four years, really from most of his term, who did not have a significant well-organized opposition on the left. You know, a lot of folks on the left kind of rolled when when Obama um, came into power in 2009. I don't think that's going to happen with Biden. I think there there's a lot of momentum uh, on the left, and I think there's going to be a lot more pressure coming from the left. Of course, that's going to be countervailed by the fact that Biden comes from the Obama-Clinton wing of the Democratic Party, that Biden has, you know, with some exceptions, mostly surrounded himself with old hands from the Obama and Clinton worlds um, and uh, the moderates uh, uh, in Congress and the, the divided Senate are going to put a lot of brakes on what the left wants to accomplish uh, uh, with Trump out of office. But I, I think we're going to see more pressure for sure in the next few years than we than we have. I don't see a left getting all complacent under a centrist Biden administration like they did for good parts of the centrist Obama administration. Since you did write that book about Obama and race, um, let me just ask you this. Um, his interventions, his post-presidential post interventions have been um, very depressing, really, uh, you know, from getting Bernie Sanders out to making sure the NBA <laughs> players didn't strike to you know some of the things he said in his book. What about that guy's influence? Uh, how do you read what his, his – does he have a long-term effect on our, on our politics? Was he just a transient force? Um, is he playing any good role now, a negative role, or should we just forget about him? Well, I mean, I, you know, Obama is a very visible public figure. And what was most striking about Obama in the four years after um, he went out of office was actually how reluctant he was to step in and even critically regarding Trump. I mean, something that you think would be um, an easy thing for, uh, you know, even a, a centrist Democrat to do. Well, he didn't. He was he was pretty quiet. He stood on the sidelines. He He ducked and covered for much of the period. But, you know, I, I don't think you can discount Obama. He still has a huge loyal following in the Democratic Party among two of the key constituents that were important in 2020, which are African-American voters who, even folks who are left of center, um, often fall into kind of an uncritical days when it comes to talking about uh, Obama. And, you know, the, the moderate, well-educated, mostly well-off, and increasingly suburban white 
cadre of largely women voters um, who've been gravitating away from uh, the Republicans and toward the Democratic Party for some time now, they like Barack Obama too. And so I think in some ways he embodies this impulse toward moderation and bipartisanship that I don't see going away anytime soon. Barack Obama was labeled by Republicans as a crazy far out leftist, but his lesson to many in the mainstream of the Democratic Party is we need more reaching across the aisle, more cooperation, more civility. And it didn't get us a lot. Um, I mean, those were deals that that essentially empowered the Republicans to move even further to the right. But there are a lot of Democrats who, who cling on to that wish that um, was embodied by Obama's uh, soft voice and, uh, and, and cautious centrism. Yeah, I mean, the guy is very good with words and very charismatic, so he does have that, that lingering power. Finally, um, you know, the standard trajectory, the consensus trajectory is that we're going to have a miserable winter and then things will start looking better in the spring and into the summer. So as assuming that something like that happens, what should our priorities be politically as we um, begin to see some kind of exit from this hell? Well, I think we have to begin by um, doing what hasn't been done in the last several months, which is addressing the insecurity, the economic insecurity and the housing insecurity of those Americans who are most negatively impacted by the pandemic, um, working class folks, folks who've been laid off, um, who are underemployed. That's a, that's a rolling disaster. And it's unless we step in and come up with some resources to help people uh, financially, we're going to see long-term economic repercussions. That's one. Cities and state governments have been gutted um, in terms of tax revenue, and we need federal intervention to provide cities and states with the resources necessary to deliver even basic services. Otherwise, we're going to see years' worth of austerity measures um, of cutbacks in, in local spending and in layoffs um, and, and, and a reduction of city services. And we've lived with the experiment of urban austerity and state austerity now for going on 50 years. And it's been pretty disastrous, except for folks who have the money to contract out private services and, and, and live comfortably in, in gated enclaves with business improvement districts and, and, and street ambassadors you know, sweeping up after them. The rest of us have, have had to deal with... Uh, uh, a declining services in, in nearly every arena of, of urban life. And so I, I, we need to channel federal resources into helping out cities and states get through the crisis and to begin the process of rebuilding after the pandemic is over. Unfortunately, uh, as long as Mitch McConnell's <laughs> got the keys to the kingdom, that's not going to happen. It's going to be really rough. Um, I'm a, a pessimist of the intellect when it comes to uh, what's, what's going to happen in Washington uh, over the next few years. That was Thomas Segru, a historian who teaches at NYU and who's editor of the Symposium on COVID-19's Impact on Cities that's on the Public Books website. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Oh, it's springtime in the mountains and I'm full of Mountain Dew. Can't even read my catalog like I used to do. I'm sitting in that little shed that's right back of the house And there comes Jake with all of his hounds, but he's gonna hear me shout I won't go hunting me and Jake, but I'll go chasing women Go put your hounds back in the pens and quit your silly grinning The moon is riding, I'm half tied for life, it's just beginning I won't go hunting me and Jake, but I'll go chasing women Let's go down to the meeting house and wait till they start home them gals that come from Possum Creek will always leave alone. We'll run them down the cornrows, them sassy little misses. We'll scare them pretty gals to death. We'll stop and throw them kisses. But I won't go hunting away you, Jake, but I'll go chasing the women. Go put them hounds back in the pen. That was some of Stuart Hamblin's I Won't Go Hunting, Jake, But I'll Go Chasing Women, a late 1940s hit. Hamlin discovered the evangelist Billy Graham in his 1949 visit to Los Angeles, got born again, and helped launch the partnership between showbiz and Bible-thumping that shaped much of modern evangelical Christianity. That story is recounted in Kristen Dumay's book, Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation, which was published several months ago by Liverite. The book is an examination of the central role of gender, particularly a view of masculinity in that faith. Among other things, the book helps explain the appeal of rude immoralists like Wayne and Donald Trump to evangelicals. 
It's also a close-up of a vast culture that lives out of view of secular urbanites like me. Kristen Dumay is a professor of history and gender studies at Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Kristen Dumay. Let's start uh, with the definition. What makes someone evangelical? That is not a simple question. There are a lot of different ways to define evangelical. Evangelicals themselves like to define themselves according to their beliefs. And so they'll highlight they believe in the authority of the scriptures. They uh, believe in conversionism, this born-again experience. They are activists acting out of their faith and uh, the centrality of, of the cross, of Christ's atonement. So they really privilege theology. I don't do that so much in this book. Uh, I really see evangelicalism as a cultural movement as much as a theological one. The evangelicals I know, many of them are theologically largely illiterate, uh, but they've, they've been immersed in this evangelical culture. They've consumed evangelical products, right? Listen to Christian contemporary music, listen to Christian radio, read books from Christian bookstores, shop at Christian stores, right? And so so I'm really looking at evangelicalism as really if, if you're immersed in this subculture, if you participate in this, if you're you attend an evangelical church, if you're part of these networks, if this is your world. And so as a cultural historian, I'm really defining evangelicalism as much as a cultural identity as a theological disposition. It seems like uh, these cultural products that you mentioned have more of an influence on shaping the consciousness of uh, believers than a lot of their ministers do. I mean, it seems like a product of a popular culture more than it is of a clerical leadership. It really is. And I think that's become clear in the last four years that many ministers, pastors who thought they were leading their flocks realize that they they don't actually have much power to lead, that this is a populist movement and that the people in the pews are uh, deeply shaped by this consumer culture, by this popular culture of evangelicalism. And, you know, a half an hour on a Sunday morning sermon isn't going to do much to shake these values, these beliefs that they're that they're really bringing into that space. There's a certain style of Protestantism that goes way back in American history, you know, Jonathan Edwards, and to some degree, this bears a resemblance to that. But what what happened between Jonathan Edwards <laughs> and the megachurch? Oh yeah, so much, so much happens. There's a lot of change over time. I mean, this is still part of a revivalist evangelical tradition that you can trace back centuries. But for me, uh, I think a really important moment is in uh, the 20th century, particularly the 1940s. I mean, you can go back to the early 20th century and the kind of fundamentalist modernist divide, which is also part of the story. But in the 1940s, that's when we see uh, fundamentalists, evangelicals who who felt kind of displaced from Protestant denominations, who felt marginalized, who had kind of gone off. They didn't disappear. They were very busy building their own institutions, their own Bible schools, their own um, communities and churches. But in the early 40s, they said, we need to band together. <laughs> we strengthen numbers. And we have such an important role to play in this country, uh, and, and we need to—we really need to do so intentionally and together. And so they formed the National Association of Evangelicals. And at that point, they were very explicit about wanting to use the culture to reach people. Uh, so Christian bookstores, uh, Christian magazines, radio, Christian radio, very important. And then soon after, television. Now, at this point, too, we see conservative Protestants really embracing Christian nationalism, the idea that America is a Christian nation and that it needs to be defended as such, and that they, as the truest Bible-believing Christians, had a special role to play. That's in 1942. By the end of that decade, we're already in, in the middle of the Cold War, right? Early Cold War. And so that Christian nationalism really moves to the fore um, in terms of evangelical identity. And uh, it's linked already at that point to gender traditionalism, to the idea that what it means to be a faithful Christian 
and a good American is to have very distinct gender roles. So men have to be strong and protectors and providers. Women are weaker, more vulnerable, more feminine. And in this Christian nationalism and gender traditionalism are tightly connected at the heart of evangelical identity already by the late 40s. And that's really this evangelical identity that I trace in ensuing decades really up to the present. Now, another uh, ancestor of this movement would be uh, the early 20th century and muscular Christianity with T- Teddy Roosevelt and the concern that America was going soft. Uh, but, you know, even the upper class uh, Endicott Peabody and the, the uh, Groton School. It's very also much linked to white supremacy and uh, imperialism. I mean, very frankly so. Today's evangelicals are quite aware of these roots, aren't they? I don't know how many are aware of the roots, but they're certainly participating in this tradition. So Teddy Roosevelt is a favorite hero uh, among writers of evangelical masculinity. And in the early 20th century, you absolutely see how this muscular Christianity is linked to uh, white supremacy and to American imperial power. And yes, Teddy Roosevelt is the, the best example. However, at that time, we also see that liberal Protestants were as likely to embrace this um, muscular Christianity as conservative Protestants were during the First World War. Liberal Protestants were actually more likely to be kind of gung-ho militaristic than many conservative Protestants were. The arrangements that we see fall into place by the 1940s, 50s, and 60s are somewhat new, even as they look back to these earlier iterations. What happens certainly by the 1960s is that this kind of value system of muscular masculinity, muscular Christianity, this linked to white supremacy, become a distinctively conservative evangelical set of values. It's a movement that really thrives in a sense of persecution. This is really the realm of Hofstadter's paranoid style. Yes. Whether it's the communists or the secularists or the uh, the Muslims, they're always uh, suffering from some kind of persecution, which is kind of funny given the dominant role of Christianity in, in so much of American life. What is it about that sense of being persecuted, of marginalization that they thrive on so much? This is so true. And for me, as I was researching this, the kind of standard narrative was that evangelicals feel so marginalized. Evangelicals feel vulnerable, and therefore they're going to respond with militancy or even militarism, because what else can they do, right? They're really pushed to the brink. When I began to research this, I realized that we needed to really flip that script, that rather than seeing militancy as a kind of last resort because of this fear, I came to see that time and again, evangelical leaders were stoking that fear, were stoking that sense of uh, this persecution complex very explicitly in order to consolidate their own power. If you're taught to fear anybody outside of your church, then uh, you need to come to the strong leader, uh, who's always a strong man, who offers you protection. So this persecution complex really drives the militancy, but it's often the militancy that comes first, and it requires this kind of persecution complex in in order to be sustained. And they're very concerned with reinventing Jesus, not as you know the pansy, peace-loving figure, the turn-the-other-cheek fellow. Uh, but no, Jesus was a badass. Uh, Jesus, uh, exactly. Jesus loves my guns. I think you quote a T-shirt as saying. Yeah, yes. Talk about this this reinvention of Jesus. If you look at the the Jesus of the New Testament of the Gospels, right? Jesus is he says, "Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemies. Turn the other cheek. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control." This is not compatible with evangelical militancy. So what they end up doing is they end up recasting Jesus in the image of a militant warrior. So he is, you know, has tattoos down his leg, is riding a horse, wielding a sword into battle, uh, you know, flaying his enemies. Jesus is not a pansy. Jesus is absolutely not like Mr. Rogers. They redefine the Jesus of the Bible into a muscular, militant warrior Christ so that they can follow that Christ into the battles of their own choosing. John Wayne, in the title of your book, very <laughs> prominent figure in this tradition. Interesting, his birth name was Marion. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but uh, why? How did he come on the scene? And why 
does he occupy such a central role in the imaginary of this movement, even decades after his death? What is it about John Wayne? I did not set out to write a book about John Wayne. Let me make that clear. Uh, But as I started to read evangelical books on masculinity, what struck me right off the start was that for all their claims to be Bible-believing Christians, their books on Christian manhood weren't very biblical. They would have a, a smattering of Bible verses taken out of context, but really they looked to Hollywood heroes. They looked to kind of mythical warriors. Uh, favorites were Mel Gibson's William Wallace from the movie Braveheart, or just random soldiers, uh, cowboys, General Patton, General MacArthur. And John Wayne kept popping up. And and at first, I I was surprised by this, right? John Wayne, not known for his Christian faith, not known for his family values, yet he had become a symbol already by the 1960s and certainly by the 1970s, had become a symbol of this kind of rugged, quote unquote, traditional American manhood, this conservative, almost retrograde masculinity where violence is necessary to achieve order. And this is a very a white masculine ideal, I should stress, as if you look at John Wayne movies, you can see this. You quote that uh, Playboy interview, though, where he's just so frankly racist. I'd forgotten he was just so frankly and explicitly and rudely racist. As a person, he was. uh, His politics also were. But on screen, he almost always played the kind of white man who would bring order in the Wild West against Native Americans or Sands of Iwo Jima against the Japanese or the Green Berets against the Vietnamese. And so he was this kind of white hero who would use violence as necessary. The ends would justify the means. I'm speaking with Kristen Dumay, author of Jesus and John Wayne, recently out from Liberate. You mentioned the fact that uh, John Wayne was hardly an exemplary Christian, but they they have a habit of investing an awful lot of admiration and and leadership in um, figures like Wayne or uh, Donald Trump or uh, Ronald Reagan. You know, these guys, you know, divorcees, immoralists, certainly not leading the life of of what one thinks of as a believing Christian. How do they reconcile these worldly figures who don't have anything to do uh, with the theology they profess? Uh, How do they reconcile that with the role they give them in politics? I said before that gender difference becomes really important to the the religious value system of conservative evangelicals. And this entails the idea that God created men and women very differently for very distinct roles. And a man's role is to be protector and provider. In order to fulfill that role as protector, God has given men, has filled them with testosterone. Now, testosterone makes them strong, it makes them aggressive, and it makes them dangerous. And they are to change channel this aggression and this strength in the direction of protecting their family, their faith, and their nation. This is also a very reactionary movement by the 1970s with the rise of feminism, with the civil rights movement, with the anti-war movement. Increasingly, conservative evangelicals who hold these ideals understand that, that they're being marginalized or that not all Americans, an increasing number of Americans, are rejecting this value system this kind of rugged masculinity, again, using violence as needed, this testosterone-driven masculinity seems to be threatened. And and so uh, with political correctness, with feminism, with liberalism, all of these things, for them, rugged masculinity comes to stand in as exemplary Christianity. Then what happens is that men who are particularly unrestrained by traditional Christian virtues, you know, by self-restraint and patience and kindness and gentleness, men who have not actually been formed through these traditional Christian values are precisely those men who can best defend Christianity. So somebody like John Wayne, somebody like Donald Trump, because he's going to tell it like it is. He's going to do what needs to be done. And there's a kind of admiration for these men who are absolutely unrestrained. And those are the men that then God has blessed them with, has appointed to protect Christianity and to protect their interests. Well, when that pussy grabbing tape came out, uh, some of the Christian support had a moment of doubt, but uh, they recovered quickly. Did that kind of masculinity that Trump was bragging about um, actually impress them to some degree? Yeah, a few wavered very briefly. 
at that point in the fall of 2016 that this entire project come to, kind of came together for me because I'd been tracing this history for, for more than a decade, actually, tracing ideas of evangelical masculinity and militarism. And what I had seen over those years uh, was one after another of the men who were proponents of this rugged, militant Christian masculinity became implicated in scandals, in abusive power or sexual abuse scandals. And so I was familiar with this narrative within evangelical organizations and institutions. So with Access Hollywood, that looked very familiar to me because there was a long history of evangelicals actually supporting abusers within their own communities, uh, quickly, very quickly forgiving, dismissing allegations, blaming the victim. To me, I made sense of this in light of this embrace of a rugged militant masculinity, because again, it's testosterone driven and men have aggression. They have God-given sex drives. And these are just some of the side effects of this great blessing. Again, um, God fills men with testosterone so that they can fight the good fight. And what we saw in terms of evangelical response to Trump in the case of Access Hollywood, many of the allegations that had been around before Access Hollywood tape released uh, really did mirror what we have seen within evangelical communities really for decades. Their leading gender theorists in this movement uh, are, are men, but a very crucial figure um, was uh, Phyllis Schlafly. She was anything but the shy, retiring housewife, not the submissive, dutiful Christian wife. She was a very prominent uh, public figure with a big professional career. First of all, how do they reconcile that kind of um, violation of gender roles with, uh, uh, in the case of someone like her? But also, like, what, was, what precisely did she uh, accomplish for the movement? What was her um, political, intellectual contribution? This is a patriarchal system, but it would not uh, exist and it certainly would not continue without the sustained support of women and that women are buying into this. Women are propping this up. And Phyllis Schlafly is a great example. Now, Schlafly herself was Catholic, but I kind of consider her an honorary evangelical. Many evangelicals do not realize that she was, in fact, Catholic. Um, but she played this critical role in the 60s and in the 70s, uh, really in, uh, beginning in the 70s, to articulate the connection between this gender traditionalism, between this macho traditional masculinity, muscular masculinity, and um, broader politics. And she helped define uh, kind of the feminine counterpart. So uh, it was up to women to be submissive, uh, to be um, very feminine, to be mothers, to be domestic, to be in the home, and above all, really to support the authority of manly men, <laughs> to develop the masculinity of their sons, and to prop up the egos and the masculinity of, of their husbands. And she really articulates this, not just in a, this is what you should do in your own home, but you need to do this in your own homes so that America is strong on the global stage, so that we have a strong national defense, so that we have strong boys who grow into strong men who can fight the Cold War battles that need to be fought. And she is just brilliant in really connecting what happens in the intimate circles of one's own home with one's own family to the global stage. And she really does lead the way and influences people like Beverly LaHaye, and so many evangelical writers who follow in her footsteps. It's easy to overlook the fact uh, that these folks have a really coherent worldview. It all blends together, the gender view, the attitude towards these outside threats, whether it's communism or Islam or secularism or whatever. It really is a comprehensive view of the world that uh, liberals just have nothing comparable to match it. No, no, it, it is. That's, that's exactly right. So these are all facets of, of the same worldview, right? Gender and religion and foreign policy and culture wars politics and really pick any issue and it, it will have a place in this, this, this whole constellation. And that's why it's so resilient. You know, so liberals or critics might want to pick apart one aspect and, and challenge one aspect, but they don't realize that this is just one facet of this very coherent 
adherent ideology that has been crafted and promoted and handed down for generations, reinforced from pulpits, right, sold to the masses through Christian radio, through Christian publishing, taught from parents to children, uh, again, for generations. And so it is incredibly resilient at this point. And it's all largely out of the view of the cultural and political elite. It is. It is. This is a world that is thriving. I mean, if you look at book sales here, it will put put many uh, authors to shame, right, in, in kind of the secular world. Millions of copies of these books sold, millions of listeners to radio programs. Uh, but this is a subculture. And so it exists largely out of the view of anybody who is on the outside. There are millions of Americans who largely exist within this subculture. This is their world. This is their their media bubble. This is their community. This is their way of seeing the world. After this book came out this summer, uh, I started getting letters. I've now gotten hundreds of letters from evangelicals themselves who say things like, this is the story of my life. You wrote my biography, right? That this is so intimately familiar to people on the inside. And for those on the outside, they may well have never heard of any of these people before. You mentioned this earlier, but I'd like to develop the point. There's a, these guys show a great propensity for ending up with sex scandals, uh, whether we're talking about Jim Baker uh, or Baby Falwell more recently, or you know that fellow who held Bible study sessions uh, with boys in his hot tub. Yes. What is it about these guys and sex scandals? Why do these happen so repeatedly? It's too easy to say there's hypocrisy involved. There seems to be something deeper and more structural. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we can talk hypocrisy, and, and that is true. But there is there is a system where, particularly with regard to sexuality, evangelicals love to talk about sex, to write about sex. Uh, like they have their own you know, bestsellers on how to have sex, and and they want to kind of reclaim sex from from the liberals. And we have better sex, we have more sex, and this is how how to have sex. Like from the sixties on, these these manuals. Yeah, you mentioned. Um, I think is it Beverly LaHaye who wrote the manual yeah. that came out a year. Or to before our bodies ourselves. Exactly, exactly. How to be happy though married is, is a great title of what um <laughs> So, so, so they're very intentional about this. Um, but, but their understanding of sex is linked up with their ideas of gender hierarchy and their ideas of gender difference. And so they believe that, again, God has has created men in a way like through testosterone, so that men are going to have a urgent sexual drive, and it is up to women to be modest if you're not married to a man, um, to not tempt a man. This is really on the woman. So you can see the victim blaming kind of built in the system. At the same time, it is up to the wife. As soon as you marry a man, it is on the wife to absolutely fulfill her husband's sexual needs and they can be excessive. And that this is kind of the framework that is inculcated in evangelical men and women from childhood on. And, and this really does set up for um, abusive situations for men who believe that they have the right to have their needs fulfilled. And um, I think even more importantly than, than the individual perpetrators, it shapes a community that is likely to or inclined to, again, be quick to forgive the perpetrators. Boys will be boys. This is, you know, men have these urges and very quick to blame the victims. Even sometimes young girls get blamed for seducing men. Girls get blamed for not being modest enough, for being in the wrong place, for tempting a man. And also wives can get blamed if their husband commits sexual assault or even is in a, a gay relationship. Clearly it was her fault for not being beautiful enough, not being sexy enough, not meeting his sexual needs. And so there, there's this culture built in that makes it really difficult for evangelicals to actually blame the perpetrator and to hold perpetrators accountable. And instead, it ends up just condoning this behavior or dismissing it and blaming victims. And finally, there's just been this recurring narrative uh, over the years coming out of cultural elites, mostly, that this is a movement in decline, that the demographics are against them. This is a dying population. They're not able to transmit it to the younger generation quite so successfully. Is that true? Or, or is this a movement that uh, is here for the long haul? There is some truth to these narratives of decline. There are larger demographic shifts and evangelicals, white evangelicals are well aware of these uh, that they are up against. 
we do see some erosion in terms of loyalty among younger uh, evangelicals. Uh, we do see evangelicals leaving the fold in uh, over the past four years. Some of this kind of 19% of evangelicals, white evangelicals who did not vote for, for Trump in 2016, have left their churches and given up on the evangelical label. Um, so you do see all of this. That said, as moderates, or resistors leave the fold, that ends uh, further radicalizing those who remain. You don't have those voices of restraint. You don't have those those voices um, pushing back within communities. And so uh, narrative of decline is, is really hard to support because you see that I've certainly seen um, through my own observations what seems to be a kind of radicalization of conservative evangelicalism over the past four years, certainly more of a lockstep approach, loyalty to President Trump, uh, animosity towards you know, Democrats, liberals, secularists, uh, Marxists, what, however you want to, you know, whatever uh, other you want to put in there. No, this movement is not going anywhere in the near term. The one thing I would suggest is that the resiliency of this evangelical subculture, that is eroding. Back in the 1990s and the early 2000s, it was very possible for a, a, an evangelical to grow up really fairly isolated within the evangelical subculture. I think it's a lot harder to do that today with social media, with Netflix and streaming. It's, it's a lot harder to stay in that isolated existence. And if anything, I think that's what could lead to eventually a, a kind of decline of the power of this political and cultural movement. Yeah, at the end of the book, you mentioned some internal critics and people who doubt from within. Um, but how important a, a force is that? There are critics. Uh, there are, are some prominent critics who um, I think have not fully come to terms with perhaps their own complicity in building this movement. There are also just many ordinary evangelicals who are struggling at this point. Uh, I, I don't want to understate the, the kind of divisions within evangelical churches right now, within families. Uh, it, the, the divide is immense right now. And, and I mean, there are families who are not speaking to each other on, across this divide. Churches are falling apart over this. Pastors are, are being fired over this. Um, and so the division is real. That said, this is not a 50-50 divide, right? This is, I, I think, still the kind of 81 to 19% is a fairly accurate uh, depiction of, of kind of centers of power that most white evangelicals are still supporting this ideology, participating in this cultural and political movement, and remaining very loyal to these values. I was Christian Dumay, a professor of history and gender studies at Calvin University and author of Jesus and John Wayne from Liverite. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go with this, the song that gave the title to Christian Dumay's book, Jesus and John Wayne by the Gaither Vocal Band. You can hear an entire philosophy of gender in the opening lines. Till next week, bye. That he was a cowboy, hard as a rock. Mama, she was quiet as a prayer Daddy'd always tell me Son, you gotta be tough Mama'd kiss my cheek and say Play fair I did my best to make them proud of me But it's never been an easy place to be Somewhere between Jesus and John Wayne, a cowboy and a saint, the cross and the open range. I try to be more like you, Lord, but most days I know I ain't. I'm some.